If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hi, I'm Ellie May O'Hagan, and I'm Owen Jones, and this is Agitpod, our fortnightly podcast. It's all kicking off. Doc, it isn't really actually. Do you know what? As summers go, because like in twenty in twenty fourteen you had the Scottish referendum, in twenty fifteen the election, twenty sixteen the whole Brexit shit show and everything that happened. This has been quite quiet. We've just been pissing about on holiday, haven't we? Yeah, there was that. Parking incident at the sex festival in Kent. Sex, <laughs> sex festival. It's funny you should say that. Actually, partridgeisms are more appropriate in this podcast than in most. Why? Why is that, Ellie? Um, because you are basically Alan Partridge no, writ large. Because we have the member of parliament for Norwich South. Uh-huh. <laughs> Central. This is of course Clive Lewis. Now, Clive, you did have. You went full. Partridge. You've mocked me. You've mocked me before you've my mouth. I'm just saying. I'm just... No, it's, it's an... You're in the lion's den now, Clive. <laughs> yeah. There will be very little mercy shown. Have I not told you? This is a roasting oh, podcast. You're here yeah. to get roasted. Um, you did um, the most... Probably most famous political partridge of any political partridgeisms. Do you want to explain what happened? Was that the celebration? No, it wasn't. Oh, there's more. <laughs> that was a great. The, ah. That was great. Uh, what was that? That we, made its way into a momentum video, that didn't up, it? That ended up in Pakistan um, and really? Sweden. Really? You don't know what we're talking about. Clive celebrated his uh, increased majority in the last election by... Well, how, how would I describe what you did? Um, it was a chest thump. I did it, oh, I did it, it, I did it last, last election. You roared. It was a, it was a, yeah, I was, because it was a lot of pent up. He roared. A lot he of roared. Pent up yeah. angst. Oh, wasn't that just Clive? Wasn't that just? Well, a lot of pent up. No, I think you spoke for the nation. <laughs> in that we, we will come on to that because it is actually quite interesting to talk about that. But first, no. The point I was going to say was when you tweeted about the pedestrianisation of Norwich city centre. Ah, indeed. You know that that now there is a there is a story to that as you can expect. Just so was... people know, if you don't watch Alan Partridge, and the reason we're talking about him is because he's he's based in Norwich. Although in the end, in a bed and breakfast, which is equidistant between London and Norwich, that's the genius mm. of its location. But he, um, he is, you know, in uh, having some kind of love making, and and to avoid, <laughs> avoid. You get- ask me why I compare <laughs> to Alan Partridge, some kind of love making. Right, he was intercoursing. <laughs> yeah, right. With a lady. Yeah, he was full blown having sex. But anyway, but to keep the wolf on the door. <laughs> you should see that, Clive. <laughs> Only could see Clive's face. To keep the wolf on the door. He uh, tries to use small talk to stop himself getting to the point of no return, including by talking about the pedestrianisation of the Senate, which you tweeted about. It's an iconic part. Well, the, so, so obviously I had a member of staff. You should never drop staff in it. I'm not going to name who it was. But I took the flack at Clive. the time. Uh, sorry, it's Danny. I took, no, yeah. I took the flack at the time. But what happened was, this is, a, this is a, the, the God's honest truth, um, the local newspaper tweeted um, a headline about um, the pedestrianisation of the Centre, have your say. <laughs> and the young journalist did it, did it in all innocence. And then someone from my office, who had access to my Twitter, retweeted it. And then it got picked up, and it was accident AP, accidental partridge, and it went ballistic. And I had the paper phone of me saying, ah, did you know? So I phoned my... And he was like, oh, my days, I can see it now. But I didn't see it at the time. And we spoke to the journalist, and the journalist had his head in his hand going, what have I done? I've done a partridge. <laughs> but it, so obviously, once it came out, I was just like, run with it. And it was, of course I knew what it was about. I didn't even tweet it. I wish I could take the credit for it. I wish I could. You've blown that out of the water. Yeah. I just put exclusive there. Yeah. It is, right? It's an exclusive. I, I mean, you've got a lot of respect for that, which you've appropriated, even though it was someone else's... You can't Talent. drop you can't drop people in at the time, and it looked like a bad thing. So it was all mistake. It was all one big mistake. It was very, it was a very witty mistake. Mm, um, yeah. So over the last few, you you got elected. So you got elected in twenty fifteen. It's been a very quiet period of British politics ever since. Let's just go. I, I want to just let's talk about the election because I went to Norwich a couple of times during the course of of, of the old general election. How did you feel? I went as well. You did. We both went. We had we were the dream team. We were. And uh, Matt Zab cousin joined us. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Gosh. A former guest. I was thinking we knocked on five doors by the time yeah, yeah. he'd finished gassing. God, it was hot. It was a hot day. It was. We got a good time. It was good, the election, for bronzing, wasn't it? Mm. You know, I, I, I felt I like lost yeah, I, I've, yeah, I've definitely got brown this summer from canvassing. And- so thanks, Theresa May, for that and many other of your good works. 
How did you feel when the election was called about noise? Because you you won that seat in 2015. Mm, that's from, right. From um, Lib Dems. Uh, you had about a 7,000 majority. Mm, that's right. But at the beginning of that election, what were you thinking? You know, the polling, what you were picking up on the ground? Well, initially, I was when it was announced, I was filming with um, the Victoria Derbyshire show and two women who had nothing to do with politics who came to Parliament and met a series of politicians. And the news broke as I went to speak to them. And I have to admit, I was pretty excited. Because it was an election, my day, you know, it was out of the blue, and so I was pretty excited. And then I got back... And I sat down with my team and our councillors were on holiday after the last election. And my team were like saying to me, uh, it was really bad in some parts of the city and um, we don't know whether you're going to hold on. Whoa. Yeah. Ouch. So that was I, good for morale. That was a bit of... <laughs> yeah. So get out there, that was, that was that was the, That was the kind of view of a lot of people. You know, we'd, been, we'd all be knocking on doors, but obviously you've got some councillors and some people in your team who've knocked on a lot more than you've been doing it week in, week out. And as I spoke to more members, there was a lot more pessimism. Um, not all, but from some of the people I was speaking to. So we thought we had, a, we knew that we had a fighting chance, but we had a fight on our hands to hold on to it. We didn't think we'd be keeping the same majority. We thought, uh, there was a point where I thought I would be able to buy a round from my majority. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, That's bribery, by the way, it's con contrary. Well, you know about the, the number of people that, yeah. And, uh, uh, that, That's, that was, that's are, you, are you gonna stick by that? Now you've, what's your majority, 20-something thousand? No, well, no, obviously what I thought it was going to be a handful of people, you know, you're going to scrape yeah. through and it was going to be a, you know, a majority which you could buy a round for. Because now you'd have to buy 15,000 pints or so, wouldn't yeah, you? I'm I think gonna, you should do I'm, it. I'm, I'm, yeah, How much would that be, do you think? 15,000, I'm going to work that out. You'd have what's to spend... the average pint of it? Oh, this is good test. The, aver the, average, the you average price of a pint in Norwich, well, it depends if it's a craft beer. So what are we going for? Um, All right, la-di-da. <laughs> Let's say a pint of Stella. Depends where you go, but about three quid in a good place. Really? Bloody hell, I'm moving to Norwich. You'd have to spend £45,000, which is basically most of your salary. It was a big mm. whack. I'm going to get stick for that. I'm going to go up £4. But yeah. £4, all right. Let's, let's do that. Divide, but yeah, it, it should be. So you've got to spend £60,000. Yeah, buying. so your salary. I'll, 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 I'll crack on with that. Great. Well, that's a pledge, by the way. So, if you are somebody who voted for Labour in Norwich South, please no, do ignore this. Please ignore do. all of this. We it's rubbish, rubbish. rubbish. We Tweet will organise this mammoth pint buying session for you. Uh, we'll do a crowd raiser. And while we're at it, could we please do a fundraiser for Clive Lewis, who is now homeless and impoverished <laughs> ah, after you. spending all of his salary on pints? When did it feel on the election that things were maybe a changing? When you turned up, when you two turned up. Well, that was the turning point. Well. Matt, Matt Zarb and you guys come off that train. I knew everything was fine. Um, when was the turning point? I can remember the turning point because I was out campaigning. It was a Saturday and it was just after Theresa May. Day after Theresa May had uh, made her announcement about her plan for pensions. Um, you mean the dementia tax? Dementia tax, sorry. Hmm. And the pension. It's, it's the summer, my brain's gone to mush. No, triple lock as well. So there was a triple lock, there was dementia tax, and there was one other thing as well that she did, and I can't remember what it was, but there was... Winter fuel payments. Winter fuel payments, that's it, thank you. Thank that, you which was, they said they were going to means test them, which means lots of pensions. And on that day, one person who said, I was voting for Theresa May, but the I, I lose out on the winter fuel payments by a couple of quid, and I'm not having that. Um, and then someone else, another pensioner, a very nice council house that they'd bought, um, was sat there with me for a good half an hour saying that she'd always voted Conservative, but she didn't know whether she could do that. Those are just two anecdotal stories. But then I began to pick up from people on other doorsteps that other people in the team had been hearing similar things and began to get a sense that it hadn't gone down very well. And this was in a really, this was in a really working class part of the city. Um, and they had been putting a lot of energy. And we saw the Tories that day, actually, out campaigning. I said, hey, how's the dementia tax gone down? And they were not heard anything. Now, I know, I know that that was bollocks. Bullshit. Yeah, so to put it mildly. Um, so that, to me, was a turning point. I think the fertile ground which it was spread over was the, the manifesto, the leak. That wasn't a good point. So the um, manifesto, because I remember that, it got leaked. I was on Sky News. Do you remember that? Where were you? Do you remember when it got leaked and everyone was like, um, I don't remember where I was, but I remember being just so excited about its contents <laughs> that not really thinking much about the leak. Because I think everybody else was like, oh, no, this is chaos. Whereas I was like, we're going to nationalise the railways, yeah. And also get free Wi-Fi on trains, which Everyone is Everyone knows how much I love that policy. Um, that's from the election. But also, yeah, the front of the Daily Mail, Daily Express, Telegraph was, oh, no, they're going to increase taxes to spend money in the economy and nationalise things. And people went, oh, right, that's good. 
Mm. I mean, that's what. Did you notice on the doorstep people went. But there was, people liked it. Yeah. People liked it. They really liked it. And I remember speaking to a former UKIP voter who said to me, I like your manifesto. And you haven't got UKIP candidate here because they stood down, the Aggressive Alliance in Norwich. Um, and he, he grilled me for a good half an hour. He was he didn't want to vote Tory. You could see it, but he felt that he had to over Brexit. But I think by the end of the conversation, these are all anecdotal, but in the conversation, he was voting Labour. And a big part of that was uh, trust the guy at the top. I think he meet, means what I think he, you know, he's saying what he means and he means what he says. And I also like what's in that manifesto because I get it. So there was anecdotal stories which you can bring out, which you can see that you can see in hindsight were turning points. But I remember that Saturday was a good Saturday. It gave me, it gave a lot of us a real hope. And as we as we went on, they they imploded more, and Jeremy looked more and more uh, like the leader many of us have known he's capable of being. You know, it's funny because I remember you you Owen went to Norwich once to canvas, and without me. And um, when you came back, you'd been at Norwich University. Do you remember that? Oh, I went up to do a video. That's towards the back end of the election. Yeah. yeah, I did a video with Clive, and that was so we went round. We, we were doing a video chatting about Clive and everything, and what he felt about the election. But yeah, we we were just chatting around the university grounds, and every young person there, every student was coming up to us. Mm. But we didn't. I I was still of the mind. I now I thought locally. I thought maybe you know I, I thought I'm probably going to hold on to this seat, and that's because obviously the big fear was this. This hidden surge that came in 2015 that no one was able to see. We were just you just couldn't believe that something you could that you would double your majority. It wasn't it was that wasn't on the cards. Mm. But we thought about holding on to it. Yes, but we were fearful of this kind of surge of people who would come out and vote for the Tories, and that would either, that would make it a lot closer than we expected. But by the time you came up. We were hoping to hold on, quite confident that we could hold on, but with a reduced majority potentially. No way we saw hung parliament. No way was that was that predicted. But I, what I was going to say is, it's really interesting, like how your how your biases are affected, how like how your ability to judge things are affected. Because I remember you going coming back from Norwich when you went to the university, and me and you were having quite a depressing conversation about how shit the election was and how it was going to be a disaster for Labour. And you went, but you know, it is interesting in Norwich, like everyone was coming up to us. Something is happening. There is something that's changing. And neither of us sort of thought, oh, well, this is, it's going to be like, there's going to be a hung parliament. But it's interesting how the, the signs were there. Actually. Yeah, do you know what I felt? Because I found, to quote the poet Christina Aguilera, Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. And my head's saying no, but blah, blah, my body's saying let's go. What I mean by that is in my head, I was saying after 2015, it's like, don't believe any signs of hope, just stamp on them. Yeah, Because you're yeah, going to be totally. devastated when the exit poll yeah. came, like in 2015. But what I kept, because you end up this weird cognitive, well, you end up this... Um, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, because I went all over the country, including Norwich, and I kept, when we went, me and you, uh, and Matt's our cousin, for ex-UKIP voters coming over, ex-Lib Dem voters coming over, ex-Green voters coming over, all these young people, many of them voted Green in your constituency. But I found that all over the country. But it was literally like, don't believe it, don't believe it, don't but believe you know, it. But what do you think? Why do you think this happened? I mean, this is the this is the big question. I don't think it's been fully resolved, but why did why did what happened happen? I mean, lots of people have written about it, but why did what happened happen? Was it a Brexit election? In effect, and I would say for a lot of people, it was a big factor. A lot of, I mean, there's no way I would have predicted doubling my majority, and I and I and it, it, it would be very difficult. I mean, I I see that majority as a, as a high watermark. I, I you know people can say, well, you got it wrong last time, so how do you know you can't do better next time? I just think actually that election there was a there was a big component of Brexit, especially for the young people as well. So many of them told me I missed out on the referendum. Uh, I didn't vote. Um, and I'm not making the same mistake this time. I'm going to really make sure because they were reminded in the referendum that voting does make a difference. But did I, Brexit really come up on the doorstep? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. It didn't have to. It did massively come up on the doorstep. Yes, it did. But it didn't have to come up on the doorstep because for a lot of people, what was understood was that under Labour, you'd get a far, you'd get a softer Brexit or no Brexit. There was so there was there was there was an idea that it was about this was about stopping the Tory juggernaut from going along and pursuing. Hard Brexit. That was part of it. Not all of it, but I think it was part of it. And there are a lot of people who saw Labour as the best bet, whether they're Liberal Democrat voters or Green voters, as the best bet to stop the Tories in their tracks was to vote for Labour. 
Um, some people won't like that assessment, but that's that's my own personal analysis. And that was a, that was a component. It wasn't the only reason. The manifesto was part of it, but it was a collage of reasons that gave people the incentive to vote Labour. I have a broader theory about elections at the moment. I think that, like, and this was my theory before the election, but I just kind of ignored it, that the candidate who campaigns in grey always loses and the candidate who campaigns in colour always wins. Mm. And what I mean by that is candidates who offer, like, sticking with the status quo, they don't offer anything exciting or imaginative, they always lose, like Hillary Clinton... Like the Remain campaign, Ed, even Ed Miliband and Theresa May, she didn't lose, but by her standards, she failed. Yes. And then the candidate who seems to offer something new and exciting and that feels alive and different, like Corbyn, like Brexit, like Trump, it doesn't matter how outlandish the idea of them winning is, they do seem to win. Like that, to me, it seems to be... It's, it's a much more broad strokes theory, but I do... that. I think that that was what it was, was that... Strong and stable at the start of the election, which is what Theresa May campaigned on, it sort of seemed like she was offering us kind of uh, safety in the face of chaos. But as the campaign went on, it just seemed to be like deadening and greying and like, you know, there was no hope or any light offered by Theresa May. Whereas like the kind of insurgency and the real like life of the election was in the in the Labour's campaign. It was sort of new and exciting. And I feel like, you know, that's how it ended up with this insurgency of people who'd never voted before. But don't you think... And things like that. I, I agree with that totally. But, I mean, it is something I think profound going on in this country and other countries, which is in the late 70s, the post-war consensus that Clement Attlee established, intervention in the economy, welfare state, um, nationalisation of key utilities, higher taxes on the rich, and so on, that was obviously beginning to collapse... And what we geeky lefty losers call neoliberalism, deregulation, privatisation, withdrawal of the state, attack on collective forms of organisation, uh, that obviously that new consensus emerged in that in the rubble. And I think what's happening in this country is the, that neoliberal consensus, as Grenfell Tower, that disaster, I think, summed up in the way the right used the winter of discontent to sum up the collapse of the post-war consensus. That's what's happening, isn't it? Do you not think this order, this social order is crumbling? Um, yes. And I think it's fragmented as well. You know, you've got two strands now on the, if you think about it, on the right. You've got those who believe that the way to deal with the problems that neoliberal, neoliberalism has created, which Trump benefited from, played on in his election, that the way to stop that is to basically close down globalisation, withdraw inwards and basically put up the barriers. That's a, and a big dose of authoritarianism to boot with it. And then you've got those who... Uh, oppose that and who have to take a very different take. You've got people like Tony Blair, David Cameron, who want basically to reset, to go back to what it was. And they understand that something's gone wrong, but inevitably they still think that globalisation and liberal markets and all the other things with it, that there is some something to salvage. But what they're failing to do is accept that the very system that propelled them to power, that, that generated and created that wealth, is failing. They don't want to accept that. They just think that with the right people, the right talent... Uh, you can navigate your way through it and it can be business as usual. That's, I think, fundamentally wrong. And then you've got those on the left, and it's not, you know, who understand that actually neoliberalism is destroying the planet, destroying our society. It's done certain things. I mean, we can't get away from the fact that neoliberalism has increased the living standards of millions of people across the planet. It has, but it's come at such a great cost and it's come with such great damage and it's had you know, a very destructive um, is it neoliberalism that did that? Would we say? Uh, that? I would say globalization, which has basically kind of taken off in the last 35, 40 years under that neoliberal umbrella, that you cannot deny the fact that it has, in many ways, lifted millions of people out of poverty. But at the same time, you know, if you look at China, look, just look at China, for example, and look at India. Now, I'm not saying that the destruction to the planet, the increase in inequality and poverty, I'm not saying that's a price worth paying, I'm not. But I am saying what it has done. Is to, but that's actually, if you think about it, created more problems. Because now, rather than just one billion Westerners trying to have the kind of uh, unsustainable lifestyle they have, you're going to have four billion, five billion in the next five, 10, 15 years. So that's going to bring with it its own problems. But do you think, the pro I, mean, I mean, in Latin America... Uh, tens of millions of people were lifted out of poverty because they had so-called neoliberalism the 80s, well, 70s onwards, and actually living standards in Latin America in the 80s and 90s stagnated and fell. You got these new, I mean, let's part of Venezuela, uh, but other across, you know, I mean, that did have a big reduction of poverty for a while, but also Uruguay, Ecuador, Bolivia, they rejected that consensus. That's how they lifted people out of poverty. And China, 
I mean, it's state-led economic development, isn't it? It's not like... But, it's, but there's, but it, there's a big dose of neoliberalism the most, in there. there. There's no... The way the, the city... It's a mishmash. Right. So the most so, neoliberal... Yeah. India? If you took, like, Latin America, like, as an example, the most neoliberal country in Latin America is Colombia, and that has the worst human rights record in the Western Hemisphere by some margin. So... You know, and there's people who are trapped in rural poverty in Colombia who have to like sell coca leaf, mm. which brings like violence to their door to survive. Mm. So, I, I, I think you have to. Well, I'm I'm not an advocate for neoliberalism. You, you, you probably well know. Um, I'm not an advocate of neoliberalism. I despise the idea. But nonetheless, when you're taking on an ideology, an economic. Uh, philosophy, a social, economic, and political philosophy. You need to know its strengths and its weaknesses, and it has done certain things, but it's come at great cost. I think that's all I'm saying, and not a price I think is worth paying, especially in terms of poverty, inequality, and climate uh, and ecology. You know, the you know the the ecosystem. So, I think in that sense, you know, it's something that needs changing. Now, do I think that kind of reverting back to a kind of statist um, 1970s? Um, endless economic growth, but just under a Keynesian model is the right way forward. No, I do not. Um, I think that the planet is the kicker, isn't it, really, for neoliberalism? You just, you, I just don't think it's possible, really, to have a, a world of neoliberal capitalism and not have catastrophic climate change. Completely. Like, you need to move to some kind of post-capitalism in order to be able to have a society that is going to live within its finiteness of the earth's resources like you need to break the link between short-term work and people's survival because mm. that i think is why people are destroying the planet because they're mm. too busy thinking about how they're going to pay the next bill which is why which is why socialism in one country will never succeed because mm. we're in a globalized world you know climate change doesn't respect boundaries biodiversity degradation doesn't respect boundaries pollution doesn't respect boundaries that was one of the reasons we were in the european union because of the environment that's one of the re- one of the great things about the european union the environmental protections uh, that were there are there um, so I think you know to my mind if you are going to shift into a social democratic future where we, we all understand socialism is the the you know political philosophy of priorities and priorities mean we need to look out for the interests of the vast majority of people on this uh, on this planet and also look out for the interests of the environment the biodiversity that's there the ecosystem and climate change and that means that's going to mean that capital capital and profit um, it can't be subordinate to them anymore. We've got to shift and shift our priorities. And that means, you know, having social democracies across the world working together to make sure that happens. Now isn't the time to withdraw inwards and look at kind of, you know, that's why I'm opposed to Brexit, you know, socialism in one country. It doesn't work. It's well, not going to, Bre- to work. Come yeah. on to Brexit in a minute. I want to say, though, I mean, I totally agree, obviously, in the cl- on climate, the destruction of the world and human civilization, as we know, would be a real bummer. But, um, you know, I mean, we have seen in this country under this model that we have, Wages now fallen for the longest period since the Napoleonic era. Mm. Uh, that, and that began, you know, before the crash, the wages of the bottom half were stagnating of the one third were falling. And in this country? In this country. In the United States, you've seen a stagnation of mm. male workers' wages for, for a very long time. So I do think the issue is that, you know, you'd see when people sometimes, so-called neoliberals, they've gone about, you know, various Asian economies, but places like Singapore, where almost all land is nationalised, and... Uh, and South Korea and China are very state-led. There's a, multi- there's, a, there's a multiplicity of models that, you know, I mean, arguably, the Chinese model is delivering more on climate change, China's. Yeah, uh, as China, China's obviously sticking to the, uh, the, uh, the, the Paris climate change negotiations. Uh, America isn't. So, you know, but America is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Um, but... China's the one that's taking, you know, the hit and doing what it needs to do on climate change. It's not doing enough, in my opinion, but it's doing a lot more than America. So, you know, there are shades of grey in terms of the economics, economic and political systems out there that can achieve. Mm-hmm. There isn't one size that fits all. Different countries will have different systems and different models. I guess what we want to focus on is what, what ours has, what our corner of the world has and the leadership that we can provide. Let's talk about Brexit. Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Because Clive is a Romaniac. Well, he's a Ramona. We should be clear. That's not fair. All life, <laughs> all life forms in my flat uh, voted in at the moment voted to vote, other than my cat, but he's ineligible because they're not they don't have the suffrage. It's not Pets. sentient. He's, he's he lacks a certain level of sentience, and I don't think he's well equipped to my cap to uh, to judge the merits of taking the EU. No, we all voted for that, and you know, me and Clive actually did. Uh, we were part of another Europe is possible, which was the EU. We were not. Let's paint our faces with the EU flag. 
Woo, the EU's perfect. Any of this, we were like, well, we've got big problems with the EU in its current form, but we can change it. And the only way of doing that is uniting with other people across Europe to do that. And and uh, yeah, we lost the referendum. So what your take though, come on, your, because my take is, and I, t I think Ellie's somewhere between us actually, but she can correct me. Because I'm in the kind of... I'm the centrist. Well, we, uh, indeed, we lost, which is... Uh, a real pain uh, and the country's it's called you know all of the, you know the xenophobic disgusting campaign the leave campaigns ran uh, and the, what that unleashed lies. the lies the you know NHS where is that 350 million uh, that and also the uh, things that are under risk workers rights also the economic pain will be faced most by working class people not least actually many of the people who voted to leave in the first place uh, but I don't think it's politically practical to ignore the referendum result no. And I think, as things stand now, the focus is what sort of Brexit we get. Okay, so I guess a couple of things in it, if I can just, just pick yeah, up on yeah, that. Come. I mean, no, one, I don't, I'm not advocating ignore the Brexit. But how can you, for crying out loud? Someone Twitter, that, dude. That, like, you, you, how, how can you? I mean, it's, it, it dominate, it's, dominate, it's going to dominate everything politically for the next, you know, five years, ten years plus. It, it, you can't ignore it. But what you can do is you can try and get a sense of perspective. No, no, if this country voted to launch a nuclear attack on Korea... I would uh, respect that decision, but I'd campaign against it. If this, if this country voted to bring back capital punishment, I'd respect that national vote, that, that referendum, but I'd campaign and fight against it. And you ask if it's different. Well, you know, look, let's take... Killing let's people. Take, let's take President Trump then. President Trump, this is kidding people, I suppose, but President Trump won a democratically decided election in America campaigning to repeal Obamacare. Okay, so I guess our message to all those Americans who are out campaigning, fighting on the streets to stop the repeal of Obamacare is, hey, guys, you lost that. You lost a democratically decided election. Therefore, you should just sit back, take it and accept it. Can I say of why course, that's different? Of though? course. Why is it different? Because right, dem yeah. democracy is a democracy is a is a is a, is a multifaceted, varied thing. And I do not understand what gives one referendum, which was extremely close and won on the basis of lies, the legitimacy to be able to say to us that, hey, you have to accept that outcome for the next generation. Bollocks. Okay, I agree with you. I like I voted Remain and I agree that like that, that there should be a campaign to remain in the EU. I guess maybe that's why I'm like somewhere in between because I don't really I've never been one for respecting election results. I've always been one for like campaigning for what I want to happen, yeah. well, regardless yeah. of what like happens in ele election results. And um, <laughs> but the, but what I don't understand and what frustrates me about the Remain camp is I'm like, well, why aren't you like holding a grassroots campaign? Because the way that I got into politics in a serious way in London was that um, after the 2020, 2010 election, when there was when there was the coalition and there were going to be like major cuts to public services. And so what I did then was I joined, a, I well, like helped co-found a group called UK Uncut that protested against tax avoidance to highlight, you know, how the cuts could be paid for out of tax avoidance. And we would do things, we would like sit on shop floors, I got arrested, we'd get into trouble, we'd get, put ourselves on news night, we'd go marching, we tried to build a big left-wing coalition, we joined up with the Occupy movement on certain things, with the trade unions on certain things. We tried to create this big coalition this big grassroots coalition of people to convince the public you know to try and win over arguments where you know that we could make to the public starting from where they were and to convince them of our point of view and you know we got into a bit of trouble doing it and what i don't understand is why aren't the remain campaign doing that i just don't think they're doing that i like it seems to me that they want to overturn it i think it, it i think it might happen i tell you what, i tell you why i think yeah no, i tell you why i think it might happen i think it might happen because increasingly more and more left wing activists more and more people from the grassroots are beginning to realize that this is the real deal that it isn't that's you know there is there is no such thing as soft brexit in my opinion there are there are outcomes which are better than others let's say so Membership of the single market, and I say membership, not having your cake and eating it, I, being outside of it. Membership of the single market is infinitely better than being outside of the single market. So this is about this is about fighting for what you believe in. It is about fighting for if you have a kind of vision for what you, where you think things should go and could be going, then you fight for it. You don't just sit back and accept something's happened. No, and you, I, didn't, and I you agree. didn't do that. You didn't do that. So yeah, I think I, I think the grassroots competitive. Unfortunately, many of the I think many of the people who've been most vociferous about um, the Remain side of things 
have been from the centre centre right of politics, and I don't think grassroots campaigning is something they necessarily read. Well, they spent the last twenty well, years kind it. of slagging it off. Like, I agree with you. I agree with you. So I think that I think I think increasingly now that the more and more trade unionists, socialists, and other left people begin to get behind this. I think you'll... you'll that's, why that's should a, we dig them out of this hole? I didn't... You know, why should I dig them it's out? it's not about I, them. It's about us. I don't just, care. It's, 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 it's about the whole country. But can I just make, just make quick two, two points? Because that election versus referendum thing keeps coming up. I, I do think it's a little bit um, of a misnomer because the whole point of election is they are then overturned on a cyclical basis. If you have one general election or vote for a president, it is by definition transient and temporary, and therefore the opposition exists constitutionally to critique and oppose what they do. And then at the, in another election about three or four years later or five years later, they have the opportunity to overturn the result. Hmm. A referendum is not the same. We had to, I mean, there was a, we had two referendums. Yeah, about a four exactly. decade gap. Okay. But the other point just on that, just one of Ellie's point is so important, which is it strikes me just from Twitter that, I mean, I'm, I mean, how realistic is that? How, how, <laughs> yeah, how um, you know, how reflective is that? I don't know. But right. A lot of the people who are very angry about Remain, and boy are they angry, are particularly angry with Remain people like myself who voted Remain and don't think you can just overturn that result. Mm. And they have ended up with this caricature of how they used to attack the left, a lot of them. Intolerant, looking for traitors, not converts, mm. uh, purist, but yeah, um, but that, and is dogmatic. That, is that confined to Remainers, though. No. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, look, you can get this... I've Sam seen... really pets them, then. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, you, it's I, a I, I can, I can I'm going of, into my room. I can think of exactly the same definition of, of from certain other political spectrums, you know. And and so I think that's a... I think when you're dealing with issues which are of great passion to people... Now look, let's, let's be quite clear about this. There are some people on the, in the Remain camp who see this now as the new front against Jeremy Corbyn, the new front against the left because the left are basically setting us out, etc, etc, going down this Brexit path with the Tories, this Lexit path, etc, etc. I've got no truck with them, ultimately. But this is an issue of such import, you know, potentially the biggest decision that we'll make in my lifetime, um, possibly since the Second World War, one of the biggest decisions I think we'll make as a country. It's incumbent upon everyone to follow this through as their conscience dictates. Now, the issue about referendum only coming around once every generation or so on. Well, I'm afraid to say, do you genuinely think that if we'd won by 51%, 52%, all those figures were reversed, do you think Nigel Farage would have gone, hey, hey hands up. But what I'm would you now. have said to him? I would have, said, said, to, I would have said to him, I, personally, I would have said you lost. Yeah, yeah. suck it and up. Then, but no, but I would have expected him to carry on the fight. I don't expect him to do anything different. But because you that's wouldn't the kind have of accepted the validity of his arguments. No, I really but, don't but, think but, but maybe I don't know what arguments he'd have made. I mean, that's a hypothetical. But what I do know is that when we're dealing with an issue of such import, it's not acceptable, in my opinion, to simply say, hey, you know, yes, you lied. Yes, it was a narrow vote. No, we don't know actually what we voted for other than to leave the EU. We have no idea about where we're going. Do I think that it's right that when the deal is on the table that we have a ratification vote? Yes, I do. Now, most people would accept that we can, we can talk about, you know, there should have been 60% minimum um, you know, minimum turnout, there should have been 60% majority, all of those kind of things. They didn't happen. Okay, I get that. But one of the things I do know is that that question was so vague, do you want in or out of the EU? Well, we're leaving the EU, but what does that look like? I think people should be given a vote on that. And I don't think that's a problem. Why that's a ratification. That's not that? a second vote. That's a ratification so vote. You know, but mo according to the polling, it's very clear that only about 37% want that and, and I think 49% say no. Why, why do you think? Because I think a lot of people, I think, are sick to death of the division that was caused by that referendum. And, and it was horrendous. And the, the Leave campaign, and the way now they delegitimise any opposition or even crit criticisms mm. as treachery, saboteurs, mm. enemies of the people and all the rest. But but there is not the appetite out there. There's not some big appetite out there for another referendum. Well, but I, I, possibly. But that's the, that when we entered into that first referendum, that should have been, by definition, the second component of it. Do you want in or out? Yes. The second, the second, the ratification process should have been: Are you happy with this deal? Yes or no? I mean, I don't think that's a. I, I don't think that's asking too much. But you know what we're doing here? We're getting tied into the minutiae of the detail of the of the kind of bureaucratic detail of referendums or yes or no. And but actually, if we talk about why this is so important, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on around at the moment, especially around in left circles, where Europe is a neoliberal project. It's not about neoliberalism. I mean, and if it was a neoliberal entity, then why would it take Google to court and, and fine it £2 billion for basically promoting its own products above other people? Why would you have um, environmental legislation? Why would you have 
the working time directive, which we opted out of. All those it things. Is, those are, it is it's about trade. It's about trade liberalisation. I'll tell you why we're struggling on the left with the issue of Europe. It's because of it's because of the fact that for the last twenty or thirty years, European social democratic social democratic parties across Europe have embraced neoliberalism themselves. New Labour did it. The German, the SPD, Germans did it across Europe. We embrace neoliberalism. That was the fault of social democracy. Now, the, to my mind, you don't now just run away from Europe, which actually, if you understand how we're going to combat the global elites, how we're going to combat corporations that can hold nation states to ransom, the way you're going to do that is through social democracy coming together, working together on the environment, on climate change, on holding corporations to account. And what are we doing? We're breaking away from that. And now Europe isn't perfect, but I know in this country, we don't run away from fights. All right. So there was Dunkirk, but that was an orderly withdrawal. You know, we don't retreat, we withdraw, and then we regroup and we come back. We don't run away from fights. And yes, Europe needs to change. We always said that. Both of us said that. But I don't think we should be running away from one of the few entities, geopolitical entities on this in this on this world, which I actually think when it comes to Israel-Palestine, when it comes to environment, environmental change, climate change, workers' rights, it is a force for good by and large. And I want to work and make it even better. I don't want to run away from it. And that's why, if you understand that socialism in one country cannot exist in the 21st century, it's never been able to exist, then these arguments that this is a neoliberal entity are, I'm afraid to say, patently wrong. I think uh, it is a neoliberal entity in some respects, and I and I voted Remain because I think it's the best thing for the country to stay in the EU. I think that what's neoliberal? So can we ask you a question? Then? What's neoliberal about intervening in markets? And which Whoa, is, your, this what, is being a, bit, a little what, bit selective. Well, no, no, what's well, I think, what, let me just what, give what, well, what's, what's, well, look what's, at. Let's do it. Yeah, one at a time. Sort of. I think like a really good example for me about how uh, the like the EU can be a force for neoliberalism and it can function as an enemy of the left. I think a really good example of that is the way that it treated treated Syriza in Greece, so which that. was the only like radical left party that took power in Europe at the time. And the you know the party wanted to reverse the austerity measures that absolutely crippled mm. the country, and it was completely crushed by the EU, okay. even when so, there was a referendum so two on things. the that's, deal. That's, that's, that, that's, so let's go there. One, Greece was able to be if you want, treated like that, because the vast majority of Europeans, including Syriza, wanted to stay in the European Union. That's the first thing. That's how they were able to be. That's why they have been able to. That's why they've been treated like that. Second thing is they're in the eurozone, and it's a currency. That's about the currency and about. So I'm not. Of course, I do, and I, I get the. I get the anger. I do. I get the I anger about that. Greece. I do, and I felt the anger as well. I went to Greece. I've seen what it's done to people. I've seen how it's decimated their health service. Yeah. I've seen. But I don't things. think that. I don't think that disproves my point, though, because the EU still had a, an, the opportunity to treat Greece differently to how it did, and it didn't take it, and it did crush that country's economy. But, but so, and, and, so that's why we should leave Europe, then? No, 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 no I'm just saying that's why I don't feel... No, can we just say clear on the neoliberalism, because there's Greece and the treatment of Greece. Yeah. Portugal, Spain, all those enforced partly by Germany. But the other point is, for example, I was talking to an, a Dutch housing expert the other day, as one does, just for laugh, and, <laughs> and he pointed out because of EU competition laws... That now basically means that social housing providers uh, are being treated as a monopoly and have to, therefore, they can't th do things like cross-subsidise using... Uh, so, so no, just, so, just, that's one example. Another... No, 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 no. no, 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 no. <laughs> You're throwing these bullshit No, 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 just giving a quick examples of, of that. Liberalisation of energy, which they promoted. Also treating, you know, state aid rules, which prevent... Often uh, the government begins. No, they to don't. Be, they do. They don't. So what they do? So this look at what it says. Then it says that if you have subsidies for a state provider, you also have to be prepared to give those subsidies to a private provider. Now, if you look at Germany, you look at France, you look at Holland, you look at other countries, you look at their state sector, you look at their industrial sector. Have they have that stopped them? Look at you've got French cars, German cars. Has that stopped them from having industrial policies in the country? You've got the you've poop. got that you've got the German you've got the German uh, federal and regional uh, investment banks. You know they're investing billions upon billions into their industries, into clean energy, into into the, the, to say that Europe. Is stopping countries. I mean, that's a choice. Stopping the, the, but, but, the, the, but no, the, we all the, voted okay, to remain okay, here. Just so we're clear. But the point. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the point to say that Europe is somehow preventing what the reason why this country hasn't done that is because of consistent political leaders and parties who have bought into neoliberal economic no policies and in, in this country. Now, what I'm saying is Europe 
can change. What is the alternative? We agree so, with you. We're just so, saying okay. it's more complex. The EU yeah, than, well, than I think we need to get we'll, rid of some of these fallacies that for, that in some way we can have a socialist utopia in this country if only we weren't part of the EU. We didn't say that. I know, but there's an implication that you won't be able to do all the things you want to do under a Jeremy Corbyn government when you're part of Europe. And I patently say, go and look at the facts and that's not the case. Well, just quick. I don't think that, that that's not what I'm arguing, really, because I voted Remain, and, and, and I think because I think that the economy will take a massive hit if we leave the EU and leave the single market, and I don't want that to happen, because I want to be able to do, Labour to be able to do all the things that it promises yeah. manifesto. Well. Yeah. But what, the reason I was saying, like, I'm lukewarm about the EU is because, is because that is why I don't really feel like I'm the one who wants to go out there knocking on doors like doing direct action, going on marches. Because to me, it's not the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, like being part of the EU. Like I would, I would vote Remain, I would vote Remain again. But it's not the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. And what frustrates me about all of the people who are, you know, like uh, really passionate Remainers... That's generalisation. Is that... I, I'm a passionate Remainer. I'm prepared for kind of... Okay. <laughs> you know... But there are many, there are many passionate Remainers who are like, who are more sort of centrist and, I f and yeah. who yeah, dominate yeah. the debate, I feel. Do, yeah. And yeah. I think what I yeah. find frustrating about that is it almost feels to me as though they think that all of these tried and tested methods of campaigning, like, like canvassing, like going on marches, mm -hmm. like direct action, like trying to appeal to people from from where they are, it almost feels like they think that that's too good for them, mm. and that actually they want to overturn it in the courts or just ignore it because it's advisory referendum because they know best. I can't imagine a lot of those people going to places like Blackpool, like Wales, where I'm mm. from, that get the structural funding but have been in the. I get all of that, and I agree. and try and to I, actually explain I, to people. I think you're wrong, and this is why. Like, and 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 that's what really irritates me about it. And I think that's my position on it. Is, I I would good. You want to stay? Then I, campaign. Campaign. So I would say, don't let that irritation lead to us rolling out of Europe. Is what I is what is what my message to you would be. And I would also say that yes, it is difficult because it is a very very. Um, convoluted and complex political arrangement of the people who are you know there are people like Anna Subri who are passionate Remainers do I have much in common with her politically outside of wanting to remain in Europe well I imagine the visions for Europe that we have and the bits of Europe that she likes and the bits of Europe I like are very different but nonetheless we find ourselves in the same place for different reasons wanting to stay within the European Union so so I guess the only, the only point I'm making is there are going to be people who are Remainers who David Cameron George Osborne's a Remainer for crying out loud do I have anything politically in common with him outside of that potentially um, and the fact that we breathe the same air probably not but that, I, what I'm saying is that I'm not going to turn my back on Europe because George Osborne likes no, Europe no, 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 but he a, likes different his vision of Europe is a very different one to that's mine that's the point I suppose just, yeah I mean this is the danger of this kind of discussion because it, we end up I think at cross purposes because everybody here voted to remain in the European Union and our view is that there are bad there are elements we object to about Europe which we we believe can be changed. And yeah. I want people, forces like, you know, in, in progressive forces in Europe to change them. But I wouldn't pretend they're not there. You know, this idea that Europe is this bastion of pure social democracy is, no, of is just not. It's I'm not just saying not true. And I do think I'm well, not saying. No, I know well again, this is a problem because I'm not I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying there are elements which are very clearly neoliberal and the eurozone which is a big component i'm not saying that's to do with us i'm talking about in terms of those in the eurozone the policies pursued there have wrecked lives and they have caused huge falls in living standards they've thrown people out of work and massive economic and so social do we do we then under a jeremy corbyn government remain part of the european union work with syriza podemos and other progressive forces in europe to change how Europe operates. Well, that's what our argument was, but then we had a referendum. Then we had a referendum. Mm. But nonetheless, we, that was our argument. Become, that, is our, that was our argument. And it, it's become so because some of us want to carry on making sure. Because my, my personal view is if I thought that we could leave Europe, have a Corbyn government, and do all the great social democratic, socialist things that I want to see happen in this country and leave Europe, if we could do that and still play our part in the world on climate change, on tackling corporate, all those things then I would probably be a lot less asked about challenging Brexit. But I don't. 
And that's why I don't think if you want to see all those fantastic policies that you know would happen under a Corbyn government take place, if the economy has fallen off a cliff edge, if we let the Tories do that, if we roll out of Europe, not only does it weaken Europe, not only does it weaken our place in the world, but all the fantastic things that you'd want to be able to do, the change that wouldn't take perhaps decades to be able to in terms of the economy and so on, overnight, and you think about the expectation of a Jeremy Corbyn government, think about the expectation that would be there. Course, yeah. And overnight, it would literally have kind of withered and died on the well, on, on Just quickly as well on Anna Subi, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because every time, like, I'm going to go and campaign at the end of September in her seat, because her majority collapsed at the last, she nearly lost her seat to Labour at the last election to a left-wing candidate. But I tweet about doing that, and you get some Labour remainers who go, oh, why are you trying to unseat her? You know, because we targeted first Boris Johnson and Duncan Smith. She voted for the bedroom tax. She voted for cuts yeah. to disability uh, to disabled people. She voted to slash the taxes on the rich, and that worries me about the loss of perspective of some people on that side. They see her as an ally. When I see her as somebody's voted for policies that cut tax credits for low-paid people, plunge disabled people into hardship, and all the rest, none of those people have been affected by the bedroom tax. And if you end up, we end up where we have the Remain cause, which is this elitist liberal London thing, which is how it's. Then it, it it's not and yelling at you know people like me. Then you I think, know I think, for, I think, for I think yeah, and I think that there's two points on that. First of all, you know, Anna Subri loses the seat the sooner the better. Um, I See want, you, Anna. I'd want to replace by someone that had reasonable views on the issue of Europe because I think it's I think ultimately you know you bring someone in who's a hardcore Lexiteer, then I'm afraid to say that all the good things that they want and I want and we all agree on just won't be able to materialise in a way that I think would allow a Labour government to survive more than I don't know however long. That's that's now that's conjecture. And some people say, well that's that's that, I disagree with you. Well that's fine. That's that's the whole nature of politics. But the thing I would say about this and about the nature of the discussion that we've had, mm -hmm. and I know the discussions that you've had on Twitter and so on, is that one of the things of the fact that for the left, for the future is that how do we begin to remember, to learn how to disagree with each other and remain comrades? Because there are differences of opinion. Because until we can square that circle, we are forever doomed to be um, extras in a Monty Python sketch of the Judeans people front. We are. And until people Splitter. can- Splitter. Splitter. Until people can understand, actually, it's fine to disagree with people politically because ultimately we want to head in the same direction. Now, some people don't want to head in the same direction as politically, but for those that do, it should be possible to be able to have thesis and antithesis and come out with a synthesis. We're in a stronger position. And I, I'm, one of the things that surprised me in the last few months, especially on the issue of Europe, has been the number of people who have said, these people have got views different to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, views are different to the shadow cabinet. They should be shut down. They shouldn't be heard. They should. Be and it's like, well, hold on a second. It was only a few weeks and months ago that we were all fighting and campaigning yeah, for people to have the right to speak their mind and their views. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm strongly of the opinion that as a internally, as a party and as a movement, we've got to begin to work out ways where we can as comrades disagree on issues but come back together. It's, it's, it's essential. And I think at the moment, I know social media probably isn't a very good example of it, but to be quite frank, it doesn't really happen. It just seems hysterical at times. Mm. I actually left Twitter because of uh, this febrile atmosphere. And I have to say, it, it's it's nice to have a break. Blood pressure goes down, doesn't it? Yeah, it does a lot, <laughs> yeah. I actually think the left is going on quite well at the moment, but I'm always like re weirdly optimistic about the left all the time. So, But no one's ever going to lie on their deathbed thinking, oh, I wish I'd spent more time arguing with angry strangers who think no, I'm the exactly. enemy on Twitter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it gets a Less time with the kids, more time with the angry strangers. <laughs> um, but before we leave, we've got one last thing to talk about, which is everybody's favourite US president, Mr. D. Trump who today went back on one of his key campaign pledges to withdraw from Afghanistan. And we actually have an Afghanistan veteran here. Mm. In he wants thousands of American troops, but he also wants more. He wants Britain to get more involved again. And you, as Ellie says, you served in Afghanistan. Mm. So what do you make of this? A, a return to... This has gone on for 16 years now. We were told at the beginning, oh, I'll be over in a day. You know, it'll all be back fine. Christmas. Uh, and, then they, and that was the kind of foreshadow for Iraq because that encouraged them to do that. And then they both were a nightmare. Hundreds of British soldiers died in Afghanistan and, and thousands were maimed. And I'm sure you know people mm. who were injured or, I don't know, who died out there. But you, you were there. So what's your, what, yeah, what is your take, as Ellie said? Um, well, I'm sure um, Donald Trump has a very, very complex uh, understanding of the geopolitical situation 
in uh, Central Asia, the Middle East, and beyond. And We've got this a is, beautiful this is geopolitical situation here, and I'm sure <laughs> that he has a, a long-term plan to, you know, both social, economic, uh, trade deals, education, and this is just a small tip of the iceberg of, of that entire plan. I am quite confident of that. Not. Um, not. So, so, eh, eh. Um, so look. That was an I, Americanism I, 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 for all of you Donald Trump fans nah. listening to this. Yeah. Oh, sarcasm alert. Um, so, look, I, I, you know, some people often ask why I went out there, and that's a podcast for another time, perhaps. But the issue for me, as with any campaign, military campaign, which this country is asked to embark upon by its leaders or by foreign leaders, always has to come back to. What is the overall geopolitical plan? What is the long-term strategy here? Because this, to me, feels like another knee-jerk reaction. We've got a problem, we'll send in troops. Now, look, I get what's happening in Afghanistan. You've got um, Islamist forces, which are overrunning the government that we left behind when, the, when NATO pulled out of Afghanistan. We never completely pulled out. We've got about 600, 800 troops out there. The Americans have got a few thousand. He's looking for an escalation. That means a larger military component. That means the potential for this to be sucking more and more troops. I don't think anyone wants to see that. And I would ask any prime minister or any president, if I was if I was in parliament, what is your overall global strategic plan in doing this? What are the other factors that you have in place to make sure that you're able to curtail the growth of the Islamists in Afghanistan, other than trying to bomb them to bits? That's what I would ask. So if Donald Trump comes begging to this country, if Theresa May comes to Parliament and asks for more troops to Afghanistan, I'm going to take on to take a very dim and very sceptical view of it. Well, that's a nice note to end on. <laughs> Please, actually. On that bombshell. Oh, God, blind. Oh, <laughs> avoid, avoid that kind of... T- was, that was supposed to be a partridgeism. Um, <sighs> on that bombshell. Um, yeah, blimey. Well, we've sorted out all the world's problems there, Clive, I think. I, it was the first time we've had a Barney on Agit Pod. I quite it. wasn't a Barney. It, it was a yeah. passionate... It was, it was a passionate debate. But we're all still friends, aren't we? No, I hate you. No, thank you. You're just a big of a maniac troll. No, that's not true. You're a Brexiteer. Yeah, I'm, I'm like Farage, but more extreme. <laughs> <laughs> I... By the way, on that, I've so signed. Has anyone ever said that? I've signed. Yes, I've signed the campaign for the Labour campaign for free movement. That's yeah. how much of a hardcore Brexiteer I am. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, great. Yeah. Cheers, everyone, for listening. Me and Ellie, by the way, this morning had some pretty sexy photos taken for for Agit Pod. So there'll be uh, not those kind of photos. No, they are. Be, oh, and you said you wouldn't publish those. Oh. Uh, so they'll be. We'll uh, send them to you, Clive. Don't we? No. They'll be at home <laughs> private what use. <laughs> Uh, no, so we've, yeah, we're going to have a little redesign, so that'll be nice. Shout out to Dave Stelfox. Dave, spot the normal way, Stelfox, S-T-E-L-F-O-X. Yep. If you're looking for a photographer, he's excellent. Susie, Google, but we'll tell you next time because you can't see. We've got some really good, amazing guests coming up. I don't think we can say who they are. We're not going to say who they are in case they drop out and humiliate us publicly. But as things down, one is, I would say, one of the preeminent comedians of our time, and the other is uh, just a very senior politician who you'll all like. So stay tuned for those. Yeah, so cheers everyone. Cheers, Clive. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye. Bye. But I don't worry about a thing, cause I know nothing's going to be alright.